It's Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website's 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. Uh, with me today is my co-host, Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And two great, two great guests with us today. Uh, we have Steve Wick, the executive editor of the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Steve. Hey, glad to be here this morning, Joe. Good to have you. And we have Carissa Katz, who is the managing editor of the East Hampton Star. Hey, Carissa. Hi, Joe. Nice to be here. Good to have you. Um, so summer is uh, kind of officially underway, although you wouldn't know it from the weather. I mean... Uh, we have gone, I don't know about you guys, but we have gone from windows open to windows closed to heat on, to heat off, to air conditioning on, to air conditioning off. Uh, it's been a crazy couple of couple of weeks here for weather, but we are officially in the season. And uh, there's been a lot of focus on uh, East Hampton, Carissa, because we are launching into the East Hampton uh, summer season with uh, some changes in the downtown area, some of them structural and some of them just uh, related to sort of the bounce back from the pandemic. So let's talk about the structural stuff first. There's a big change in how East Hampton is is looking at parking in the village, correct? Yeah. So they've been talking about it for basically ever since the new board took over and we've got now paid parking for the first time in East Hampton Village. So East Hampton's joining Sag Harbor and Southampton Village and trying out paid parking in certain areas. Um, and that kind of, I think that got its its biggest test run um, over the Memorial Day weekend. I'm not too sure how it went in Sag Harbor, but I think there was still some confusion about it in East Hampton where it's in the downtown parking lots. And the other thing is that East Hampton is looking well, not just looking at, they're planning to do diagonal parking on Newtown Lane, um, which is going to be a big change for how traffic moves there, and and will be a big change for the for the look of Newtown as well. But but you know, mention that in any at any cocktail party if you actually go to a cocktail party <laughs> off of Zoom, and uh, you know, people just won't stop talking about it. Every the Newtown Lane. Meeting. Yeah, and every editorial meeting we have, there's, you know, we get waylaid on a parking discussion that that tends to, you know, it'll take like 10 or 15 minutes of our time. Well, it's key, it's key too, right? Because they, what they're going to do is they're going to change it to diagonal parking on one side, and that'll add about a dozen spaces, but it's also going to take away a lane of travel, right? Yeah, it'll take away a lane of travel um, in the uh, the eastbound toward, heading toward Main Street. Um, it'll also take away the center. It's not an island, but the striped area in the center of Newtown Lane where people will go and stop when they're crossing the street, not at the crosswalks. Um, you know, and there's some people think it will be a nice addition. It'll give it more of a Sag Harbor feel, which I think East Hampton in some ways aspires to sort of the vibrancy of Sag Harbor. Um, but it will, people also are really concerned about the gridlock and the, the two board members who voted against it said that they really feared it was going to mean constant gridlock on Newtown Lane. So yeah, fortunately, like, fortunately, Newtown Lane, not a very busy street, right? Well, actually, <laughs> you're being facetious, right? I am. 
it's, you know, the, the mayor said, if people are using Newtown Lane, they shouldn't be using it as a through way. They should be using it because they're looking for parking. But the fact of the matter is, if you were to go to Newtown Lane at the end of any work day, especially during the school year when parents are picking up kids from maybe the John Marshall School or the middle school, you'll see traffic backed up for a really long way and go any, go any day in the summer and, and there's always a backup. So maybe this will be better. You kind of, I'm trying to just suspend my disbelief a little bit and see how it goes. But, um, but I know people are sort of pretty up in arms about it. It's hard to change people's people get used to things. And I, I know one of the references has been that Southampton, by the way, just to clarify, Southampton isn't doing paid parking yet. They're still looking at it. Okay. And, and that may be something that they they dip a toe into as well, um, along with Sag Harbor and East Hampton. But they haven't actually moved forward yet with a plan. Um, but a lot of people in East Hampton point to the fact that both Sag Harbor and Southampton have diagonal parking uh, and, and have for years. But it's also a different circumstance because that's been part of the infrastructure in those villages for years. And, and the streets there are nice and wide, which I think yeah. is true in, in East Hampton too, but it's a big change when, when you suddenly ask people not to use streets in the ways they they've used them for years and to get used to people backing out of spaces where they've pulled in diagonally. It's uh, it's a, it's a, I think both our papers have questioned the timing of doing it right as we start into a summer season. It has the potential to, to be a problem. Yeah, I think so. And there, the circumstances in Sag Harbor and Southampton are both different in that those main streets aren't dumping onto 27. Um, so, so, I mean, those new, and Newtown Lane, it, it just goes right into the main artery of traffic. So it makes for a slightly different situation. And, and I gotta say, if you look at if you look at Sag Harbor Village, it's not like you can hold that up as a as a pinnacle of, of great traffic movement. Yeah, it's true. Do everything possible to avoid getting stuck in one of the backups in, in Sag Harbor Village when I'm coming home from work in the summer. So we'll see. Trying to trying to keep an open mind. And you know, we could be surprised. We could be surprised at how much nicer it looks and how it actually works after all. And more parking is more parking, no question. Yeah, um, it's always an issue, so. You know, we're also looking at the impact on uh, the return from the pandemic and uh, all of our villages and hamlets uh, that have a, a business district are trying to rebound now. And, and Steve and Carissa both, I, I'm curious, uh, We there was on Friday, a jobs report came out that was a little more promising. It showed that the, the economy is sort of lurching forward and more people are being hired now. It was about double what it was a month ago. And I'm curious whether just anecdotally, um, and Steve, maybe you can, you can pick up on this. Are, are businesses still having trouble um, filling positions here, especially with the summer season, season having arrived. I mean, it, it means making a lot of hires really fast to get up and, and gear up. We do that every year, but this year's a special case. It seems over here, um, Joe, it's, it's a bit of a crisis. We had a story um, a week ago or so on the number of help wanted signs on the North Fork. Uh, everything from businesses like pool companies which apparently have never seen more business than they're doing now. A lot of the new residents putting in pools and even landscape companies. Uh, I talked to a, a landscape owner in Riverhead on Sound Avenue 
who said he, he can't find enough help. <clears throat> so, and I talked to someone yesterday at, at a big farm stand in Kutchog, and she said, I, I, I'm desperate to get people in here. They're hoping that high school kids, once high school is over here in a couple of weeks, that they'll come around and apply for jobs. It's still a problem. And everybody has a kind of a theory on why that is. Clearly, um, many think the $300 extra on unemployment checks is a factor. Others say it's just there's much, way more people out here now, harder and harder to, to meet employment needs. But help wanted signs are ubiquitous over here. Yeah, I mean, the people that, that came out during the pandemic and people that come out in the summer, those aren't certainly aren't the people that are, are filling those um, those low level positions, I guess, low levels in, in air quotes. I mean, it, it, any job's a job. But. No, the, the farm stand, Bill, I was at yesterday. Um, he has, the owner of that farm, has uh, legal arrangements um, through the Guatemalan embassy to bring people here that he houses over the summer. But he said, without them, I, I, I couldn't put a farm out. Well, and the regular guest worker program um, that brings a lot of uh, people over from from Europe to work, I think that's still suspended because of the the pandemic, and that traditionally brought a lot of people to both North and and South Forks. But I think the North Fork and certainly the South Fork, what we're dealing with over here is the post pandemic influx of people, the the summer houses that became year round houses, so they were year round population. Uh, the increase in demand. Uh, I talked to a lumber yard yesterday that said they're having a hard time filling lumber needs, let alone prices. So everything is way, way, way up. And so, so maybe it's it, part of it is is not less employees, but just like you said, more more demand and more work. So you need more employees to you know to. I think to meet it's that probably need. largely that there are owners who will tell you that. The government needs to end the $300 extra. I think it runs to the end of August, I think. Um, I don't know that that's a factor or not. I never asked, actually asked anyone about that. But I wonder if it's less of a factor here, Steve, just because $300 a week isn't really going to um, <laughs> it, it doesn't make a huge difference for people who live, live out here with the housing costs and everything. But It's also interesting. I think we talked about this once before, Joe, that virtually every fire department on the North Fork has um, volunteers needed, volunteers needed. You see the signs everywhere. And if you talk to them about it, they would call, they would cite the housing issue as being the impediment to bringing in new members. Absolutely. And I know there's been some uh, unique and, and innovative ideas. And I know one of the, the local golf courses, one of the local golf clubs uh, has proposed using shipping containers to create temporary housing for their workers. And I think another, I think Atlantic Golf Course uh, is building some workforce housing on their property as well. Uh, Carissa, am I, am I correct about that? I think uh, Atlantic has a proposal. I know the bridge in Noyak was was looking at the, the shipping container housing. I'm not sure about Atlantic, but I do know that, um, you know, I live on Shelter Island and I have seen that the, uh, the Gardner Bay Country Club is proposing to build um, housing on their property that would be ostensibly for workers. And so they've got a proposal um, before the boards now. Um, you know, it's interesting. Someone made the point uh, recently to me that um, for years and years, the, the biggest states used this model where they had housing on the biggest states for the people who worked on the biggest states. And yeah. I think that's that's still true to some degree, but I'm not sure 
how much that that's still true and and the uh the ripple effect on the housing market in general uh is is something that we've all noticed over the last couple of years and it's okay. and it, it, the pandemic only made it worse because now you have year-round housing or housing that was only used by people in the summer they're now here year-round so those rentals are gone and then the price of real estate as we all know is just absolutely insane um, the, the so, businesses, the golf courses, they're, they're just going to have to do that, right? I mean, if they want to keep employees, they're, they're just going to have to help them provide housing. Somebody was, was talking about it the other day, anecdotally, when they built the watch case factory years and years and years ago in, in Sag Harbor, that they built workforce housing for, for the workers for that factory. And that's how, that's how that company thrived and survived. And, you know, we, we like to laugh about the shipping container housing, but um, but if it's converted and if, and if it's not, I don't think I don't think it's meant to be permanent year round housing. But if it's temporary housing for, you know, for single people working summer jobs, then maybe that's not a not a bad solution. I, I have you to know, tell I, you, shipping container housing is a hot trend. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, right. It sounds terrible until you start to think about some of the, the, the architectural trends to, to do that, too. So it's not uh, it doesn't have to be living in a, you know, I, it's, uh, I, I, it's, I saw a, a, I saw a mobile home on online the other day for sale for over a million dollars for a mobile, mobile home, home? Yeah. for a mobile home. Where? I, I don't recall where it was. It was South Fork. Um, it was Montauk, I believe. Was it Montauk? I believe so. Yes. Montauk for a million dollars. For a million dollars. Because I because I think it's where the trailer sits. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my think, goodness. Yeah. That's said, uh, but but uh, it's going to take some creative solutions. There's no question, Chris. I also wanted to talk about the fact that that with the pandemic, it's had an effect on businesses um, within. We're seeing the changes now. There's been a little bit of a shuffling, and and I was actually surprised in a positive way how many businesses were able to survive a year that I don't think anybody could have ever planned for. But some of the businesses have started to go away and we're, we're starting to see a little bit of a shuffling and you're seeing that quite a bit in East Hampton, right? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Um, one of the businesses that East Hampton lost since last summer was uh, scoop du jour, the ice cream shop that was on Newtown lane. And um, you know, a lot of people, part of the reason for that was the, with the decreased volume of last year, they said they just couldn't make it their volume business and they needed the volume to, to crank it out and be able to afford to be in that spot. So they closed at the end of last summer, but a lot of people came back Memorial Day weekend. They're out, it feels like summer. They wanna go get an ice cream cone right on Newtown Lane where they always did. And, and so they're recognizing for the first time that that shop is gone. And we had a story this week about people sort of in a panic of, you know, and everyone from the six-year-old crowd to the to the grandparents who take the six-year-olds to that spot. Um, and that's, you know, that was sort of a, a victim of, of the pandemic. Um, and then, you know, in uh, separately, maybe not so much a victim of the pandemic, but, but also in uh, Amagansett, the Hampton Chutney Company, which is a really popular eatery where people will go and take their food into the Amagansett Square, sit on picnic tables. They, um, they found out that their rent is going to be practically tripled and mm. it makes it virtually impossible for them to stay in that space. So they're planning on 
looking for a new space after decades there and kind of really being a fixture in that square and a draw for a lot of people who would make a special trip because they knew it was there and it was a nice thing, nice place to get a bite to eat. You know, there's so many conversations that take place about the villages and the hamlets and about the need for mom and pop businesses and, and small businesses. But the way the way the the situation is out here right now, it's very difficult for an individual business to survive in that climate. I know that that in Southampton Village, um, a lot of the rents in the village, uh, they require the renters to, to pay the insurance and the property taxes for that property, even though they're just renters. And, and that's a that's a big nut for a business to have to cover um, and still stay stay alive. And, and, and the only thing that you end up with then are pop-up shops with uh, with national retailers. And you see that a, a, quite a bit in East Hampton too, right? I mean, I think that's, that's what ends up replacing a lot of the places that go out, right? Yeah. I mean, we have a new Gucci shop and that's, it's great that they feel that they can make their money in East Hampton and they probably can. Um, it didn't replace a mom and pop shop, but, but um, it's just, it's more of the same. And you do have to think, you know, you can't cover these things and read about these things for as long as we all have and, and wonder, well, is there some other outside of the box solution to kind of keeping, keeping our main streets feeling like they're not just Rodeo Drive, that they're not just every other wealthy downtown across the country? Um, I don't know what the answer is, but I think that discussion is a really good one for people to start having. Um, I'm sure you guys have touched on that in some of the um, 27 speaks that you've done. And, um, but it, you know, it just, it's a real conundrum. Is there it really anything? is. I'm curious yeah. if there's anything on the North Fork that is kind of making that attempt because you almost are, it's like the, the moment could possibly still be there for the North Fork. Yeah. I think in places like Greenport um, where there's always been this aspiration to be like Sag Harbor they may not think that anymore. They may be thinking that it's just too expensive. Shops come and go. There are some, some businesses there that are always have been there a long, long time. But I think just coming out of this pandemic, there's going to be so many conversations that have to be had about what our downtowns will look like, how they'll come back, how they won't come back. I noticed this week, a lot of them have taken down their mask signs on the doors. Some were kept, some kept them up, some took them down. Weekends uh, in in uh, in Greenport are packed. It's hard to park. They're bringing back the parklets, the little spaces outside of businesses where you can sit and have a meal or something, and that takes up parking spaces. I think they're preparing for just a huge amount of people coming out again and dealing with that. And as Greenport begins to just, because of the pandemic and because of real estate prices rising, over the last few years, wrestles with the idea that it's kind of blue collar past is rapidly disappearing. It's waterfront fishing industry history and past is all but going away. And it, it, to a lot of people, it's actually a very sad thing. It's a lot, it's of, like parallels to Sa- a lot of parallels to Sag Harbor. Yeah, the bonnikers in East Hampton that Peter Matheson wrote about in Men's Lives and when I was at Newsday, I followed a, a Holstein crew around for a while, um, Jens Lester's crew, and they're all, no, nobody's Holsteining from the beach anymore. The last crew I went out with many, many years ago 
we were in Sagaponic and a guy in a Range Rover uh, drove down the beach <laughs> to scream at them and said that their fish smelled and they're ruining his uh, in front of his, his waterfront house. And I went over to the guy and I said, you know, these guys have been doing this for generations and you just built this big house here. He said, well, I don't want this anymore. Uh, and that that past of the South Fork and, and very much so for Greenport is uh, sorely missed. That's really fascinating. And that that's sort of encapsulates uh, the friction that, that we see all the time in, in the communities out here, the difference between uh, what made this area special and, and attracted all, all the people who've come and some of the people who now want some of those things to go away. It's the, the equivalent is the people who complain about the farm next door stirring up dust um, for, for their house, which, which yeah, is you, another. You get calls from somebody will call and say, well, the, the pump on that farm woke me up in the morning. And it's like, well, why you live next to a farm, but it seems to me that the extraordinary history of the South Fork, um, the stuff that David Rattray's dad wrote a lot about, uh, the Bonnikers, the, the, the artists who could come out and rent a house for nothing and paint. It, it's, it's sad thinking that all that's gone now and a trailer in Montauk can go on sale for a million dollars. I don't know who's supposed to live here anymore. This yeah. is just a hedge fund in Hollywood people. and. I don't know who's going to put out fires. I don't know who's going to, te- you know, pave highways. And I think eventually it's 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 existential, Carissa. I think I, I think that that these villages and towns can't survive without some nod to the people who really are. They make up the towns. Yeah, and the interesting thing is that you know I've we've all of us have been in the in the journalism field here on the East End for a long time and. I feel like we've had this, I feel like this discussion is, has been happening again and again and again. And it's, and it's always some, any kind of solution is so elusive. Um, you know, we could have, we would, could have this discussion 25 years ago and we would, we would be lamenting the loss of things then. And um, it's just gone further and further. Um, but I think it's not, and it's not just the, the blue collar folks. It's not just the, Longtime residents who miss that kind of experience, you know, the, the the experience of a downtown community that that feels like, you know, your, your kids could walk around and there's six different shops that they could maybe go into with a couple of bucks. We'll call it five bucks this these days. <laughs> maybe you know, while away their afternoon, kind of. And, you know, I, I have that nostalgia for East Hampton. I, you know, go in and get yourself a donut and you buy a couple of stickers and, you, and that's, you know, that's what I did when I was 12 or 13. And, and um, I think, you know, people want, uh, people want downtowns that feel like their community, that feel like they reflect that, the vibrancy of the community. Go back and. Go back and look at Peter Matheson's book, Men's Lives, which wasn't published that long ago. Yeah. That entire world is gone. And, 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 and the funny thing is, though, is that's why people came out here. And that's why people moved out here and built houses out here is because they wanted that rural character. They, they wanted those cute little downtowns. They wanted the walkable main streets. Um but, it, but it's that influx of people then that, that want at the same time, and, and we talked about it, I think, last week, they want that urbanization of, of the area, too. They want it to look a little bit like 
the home that they came from, which is just counterintuitive. Well, they want a Ralph Lauren store, but, you know, 15 years ago, a common site in particularly in Riverhead, but also in Southfold were potato trucks over, you know, those V shaped potato trucks that you would see coming out of farms and going into barns. You never see that anymore. It's all over. That's done. Um, Everything's changed and it's changed in a way that money has just completely reshaped the landscape here. Obviously it happened before here over on your side of the Bay. But as Carissa was saying, what are the long-term implications of this? You graduate from high school. I don't know how you're going to stay here. And again, this has been asked for generations. And And as you said, that starts to have an impact on the quality of life as far as volunteers and and the people who staff the the, the fire departments and uh, this is this is the ongoing uh, the probably the biggest conflict we have out here I think is what attracted people is you know it's attracted people and now that's put it all in jeopardy so I think that's going to be a conversation we continue this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM I'm Joe Shaw my co-host is Bill Sutton we're with the uh, Express News Group our guest today Steve Wick from the Times Review Media Group and Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star uh, Steve there's a connection you mentioned David Rattray and the connection between the Star and the Times Review Media Group, you guys did a story this week uh, about a project that David's doing that's just remarkable, but you tied it to something that's very timely uh, this week as well. Yeah, David um, started a few years ago his In Plain Sight project, which is an attempt to finally, after generations of town historians essentially ignoring it, looking at the issue of slavery in the early days of, of settlement here by the English. Um, There was always a small group of people on the North Fork who were interested in that subject, but that group now came together and formed its own project, kind of an expansion of in plain sight for the North Fork to look at um, the extent of slavery here. And what's really interesting about it, Joe, is that in just the last few months of that group's research on the North Fork, I think they've come up with 400 slave names, actual names, Mm. Um, the oldest original families here were all slave owners. Um, it was extensive. Um, there's also how it intersects with indigenous history in terms of what became of them. You look at town records that say uh, the, the Indians disappeared. I don't know what that means. What do you mean they disappeared? Where did they go? What happened to them? But we have a column this week in both the Suffolk Times and the News Review looking again at, at the local version of David's In Plain Sight project and what it's discovered. But we use that column to talk about Tulsa. Mm. And to me, Joe, a, a pogrom, the column refers, calls it an American Kristallnacht, which was the pro- pogrom in Germany in November 1938, when hordes of people went out and burned down all the synagogues, or Wounded Knee in 1890, where 300 Lakota Indians, men, women, and children were dumped into a mass grave. How an incident on the scale of Tulsa 100 years ago could possibly now be new. It's just, it's it's shocking. It's something that vast, the destruction of an entire black community that was basically prosperous. They were middle-class. They burned them all out. It's pretty mind-boggling. They killed 300 people. I, there's the four of us here. I had never 
heard of this incident before. Actually, I'll, I'll be I'll be honest. The first place I heard of it was actually in popular culture, uh, the Watchmen series uh, that that began with that incident. Um, and and it's it's interesting because it almost feels like an alternate history. It you know, does. it almost feels it almost feels like it can't possibly be true because we never heard of it. So how could this have really happened? And, and the, you know, it it just lifted the veil on this entire incident, Stephen, and, and it stayed hidden for so long. And but again, if you're a black kid who went to high school in Tulsa and your grandparents went through this and you know it from your own family history, but no one talked about it. Um, and, and then, it, of course, it brings up all kinds of interesting conversations that America is trying to have. You know, we're talking about should racism be taught in high schools? And there's certain parts of the political spectrum that are very, very much against it because they think it's just wrong. Um, there's this alternate history that people have come up with in which slavery is not even included. And then there's the issue of reparations. Um, if there's not a case for reparations in Tulsa, I don't know what, where would there be a better example of businesses, churches, homes, barbershops, um, a generation of black wealth just simply burned out. If that's not a case for people being compensated the way the Germans compensated those Jews who lost their businesses um, in the 1930s and 1940s, I, I don't know a better example of where it should work. I don't know yes. how you apply it nationally in terms of how you would do it. But this is a very specific place and time. And how much was lost? That neighborhood, Greenwood in Tulsa, Joe, is now entirely white. The businesses are entirely white. They burned them out. Yeah. Which was the goal. Yeah. You have to look at not, not only what was lost, but what could have been if it hadn't been burned out. What, where, where would people in that community be today if that massacre hadn't happened when you're talking about reparations and, and making up for, for, for that somehow. And I mean, those, those but, no, but not being able to tell the truth about it, you know, put it re reparations aside for a second. They, they spent a hundred years, not even talking about it. Right. And uh, I, I got a call from someone last night who read the column who basically said, why are you bothering to tell us this? So there's still a group of people out there who have absolutely no interest in knowing the, the truth, because they, I, I guess it's what you're, the words you use, Joe, it's the alternative history, the alternate history that they want. I'm, I'm fascinated by that part of this. And, and Tom Hanks, the actor, wrote a piece for the New York Times on Friday talking about this, where, where Tom Hanks prides himself as kind of an amateur historian. Um, and he said the fact that that he had never heard of Tulsa himself until just recently is stunning to him. And, and something he said, which I think is fascinating, and I'm quoting, he said, the truth about Tulsa and the repeated violence by some white Americans against black Americans was systemically ignored, perhaps because it was regarded as too honest, too painful a lesson for our young white ears. So our predominantly white schools didn't teach it. Our mass appeal works of historical fiction didn't enlighten us. And my chosen industry didn't take on the subject in films and shows until recently. And, and the point that he went on to make is, imagine the impact that would have had on generations of both white and black Americans 
to know this story and how it may have influenced the way we looked at issues of race. Better look at how it may have impacted it by not being there. The void of us not knowing about this had an impact on how we looked at race relations. And, and I think that's the more you think about the enormity of that impact, it, it, it really does take your breath away. And, and it went on for days. They rounded up people. They put them in camps. They put them in camps in 1921. Um, and the, the wealth all lost. And then the generations that it took to try to get it back again or build the business back up again. And where do you go? Um, I haven't read Tom Hanks's piece yet. I'm very anxious to read it, Joe. Thanks for, for mentioning it. But we, we have yet to come to terms with what was our history? This is why David Rattray's project in East Hampton and our project on the North Fork, and I think will eventually merge into the same website. This is why this is so important. As I said, in this column today, in yesterday's paper, we, we name, we, 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 there are now 400 names of slaves that were never written down before. We now have them basically just by trolling and going through all kinds of, of birth and death records and estate records and, and wills and, and testaments. This is vitally important to tell the truth, but it somehow bothers the heck out of people. Yeah. Reese, I'm cur curious, have you gotten feedback on David's project? Have you gotten similar kinds yes, of feedback? Um, you know, I've seen people who are frustrated that, um, you know, what is asking what does this imply you know why why are you doing this you know why why do we you know what are you saying should the, the notion of reparations comes into it and people are frustrated by that what do you want us to do um why is it my so, fault yeah why does it matter and i think one of the things that is so powerful about this particular project and action is that you are giving people back their names you are you know bringing the names out of history these and 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 you are putting those names out there so that um you know there's all this talk lately of this cancel culture you know nobody wants we there's there has been a cancellation of so much history by by not including those names by not bringing them to the to the forefront by not by not drawing attention to them, that, uh, you know, it's, it, it does something to the psyche of the people who have, who have come after. And, and I'm, you know, black people, white people, people of any, any background, um, there is sometimes our history is painful and sometimes it can be, um, we may feel embarrassed or ashamed about it, but I think that one of the biggest things is to, if you if you acknowledge it, that is really a first step, and that's what these this I, I see it as almost a naming project, you know, and that, um, and I think that's in, in my opinion, it's, it's incredibly powerful to do. But I that. don't think you can, and it's absolutely true, Carissa. You're absolutely right, and I don't think it's there's any way to understand the beginning of the East End, South South Hold and East Hampton and South Hampton without understanding two essential storylines. One is what became of the indigenous people who were here. Mm -hmm. And two, what was the role of slavery and how extensive was it in building up the wealth of those early families? Let's just take the gardeners, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so 
coming to terms with this, understanding this, this is not in any way canceling out people. I mean, the column we have in yesterday's paper kind of goes out of its way to say we're not judging anyone. We're not judging previous historians or previous writers. We simply want a better story told. And that's what we're going to do. And that's you know, what David started. And he inspired us to keep it going on our side, too. But I don't know how a society can move forward if an event on the scale of Tulsa can be. You just heard about it two weeks ago. I, I don't know how that's possible. You know, the other thing is I, I'm amazed at people who say, why are we doing this? These are these are stories that resonate today. I mean, if you look at the the uh, Shinnecock Nation's fight with the state, this is all it has deep roots in all of this and 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 how the tribe has been has been treated over the years uh, by white settlers. And and it does continue to this day. These these aren't isolated stories from history no. that have no bearing on the current the current society. It's exactly why we're fighting a lot of the battles yeah. that we're fighting today. And Joe, keep this in mind. This is very recent. Just in the 1880s, mm-hmm. the railroad wanted to go from Patchog to Montauk because a big developer out there wanted a Miami kind of resort. The only way to get the railroad across the Shinnecock Canal and through the Shinnecock Hills was to take that land from the Shinnecock people because that was their originally set aside land. So a petition was circulated in Albany, allegedly signed by Shinnecocks, now known to be fraudulent, saying, Mm -hmm. oh, you can have that whole northern half. That turned into some of the wealthiest golf courses the world has ever known that just happened in the 1880s that's not that long ago right so the town of southampton needs to admit this i'm not saying they have to pay anybody anything for it but for god's sakes at least say this is what happened i had i had always said to members of the nation like michael smith yes it's one thing to be looking for economic things like casinos but what you really need is an historic commission to analyze how that land was taken from you by a group of railroad and developing magnets who wanted it. And look what they've done with it. None of it to the benefit of the nation. I had a recent conversation with uh, Tila Troge, who's an attorney uh, for the Shinnecock Nation. And she made the point that in the earliest town documents that we have from the 1600s, there are references to Shinnecock men being sold into slavery uh, in the West Indies, in the sugar trade, um, there's some question. I mean, there's there's a lot of debate over the difference between uh, slavery and indentured servitude back then. But I think in this case, there wasn't much ambiguity about it. They were sold as slaves um, it, into the West Indies. Um, so so it is it is still part of the history of this region that has gone untold in the very same way that the Tulsa um, massacre went untold for so many years. And oddly enough, we as our little community newspapers out here, Joe, we can look at Tulsa and say, all right, we're not going to repeat anything like that here. We're going to write what we see with efforts like David's efforts like ours over here. We're going to we're going to publish the results and let people understand what what happened here. And it's absolutely true. There there are Shinnecock graves on South Pacific islands. Shinnecocks who went on whaling ships like the Lee brothers. I had a woman call me a year ago from San Francisco who was born on an island I never heard of in the South Pacific who did a cheek swab, ancestry cheek swab, and discovered she has Indian DNA. 
And then she did the family tree and discovered she was a descendant of one of those Lee brothers who stayed on the island. Shinnecock Indian buried on an island in the South Pacific. And not a, not a story you're going to get told in high school. And, you know, it's worth uh, putting in a plug here that the African-American Museum in Southampton Village is finally opening and maybe it will start to tell some of these stories as well. Uh, they've gone untold for too long. And I, I've got to say, all candor, I'm just really proud of the work that David's doing and that you're doing. I, I think it's just great stuff. And people who ask why we do it, I think really miss uh, the whole point of what community journalism is supposed to be about. Uh, it's about telling everybody's stories. So this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. With us is Steve Wick of the Times Review Media Group and Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star. Um, so we have a new candidate who has stepped forward in the first district house election, which is actually coming in 2022, uh, but candidates are already starting to line up because it looks like uh, Lee Zeldin, the incumbent, has turned his attention to the governor's race uh, and is going to leave a spot open uh, to seek. And so we find this interesting. Uh, Steve, tell us it's um, it's Kara Hahn. Tell us a little bit about who Kara Hahn is. She will be challenging Bridget Fleming, who is our local uh, Suffolk County legislator. And and Bridget sort of seemed to come out uh, with guns blazing and a lot of uh, endorsements behind her. But uh, Kara Hahn presents a real serious challenge, right? Yeah, I, I think while neither of them, Joe, has... Um as the endorsement of the County Democratic Committee, Richie Schaefer, um, I think Carahan's entrance into the race is really quite serious. Um, they're both county legislators. Uh, Richie Fleming represents the South Fork. Carahan is up on the North Shore. Her announcement was in Stony Brook. Um, and she's, she's in it, it's early. She obviously is gonna be a primary now. Um, I believe they all think that Zeldin will, in fact, let the seat lapse when he runs for governor and that a Democrat can take that that seat. I haven't heard of any Republicans talking about it yet. So that's kind of interesting as well. But I, I think what you'll see now is a very vigorous race um, between at least two Democrats uh, for that seat that there is a lot of criticism of, of Zeldin and his relationship with Trump and all the issues that go with this in terms of the changing demographic here. Zeldin didn't even win Southold in the last the last race last fall. So Democrats see, really see this show as an opportunity to take this seat. Teresa, I'm curious though, we've seen it before where uh, the Democrats, uh, the primaries end up really costing them in the general election because it ends up sapping all of their resources, fighting each other. And, and also I think really does sort of um, take a toll on the candidate that eventually emerges. Uh, do you think that could end up happening again here now that uh, you have a two-person race for, for the Democratic nomination? I, I, I think it's possible. Um, you know, the hope is that it will bring some attention to the, to, uh, to the race in general and that maybe people who don't yet have the visibility um, district-wide might might get it, but of course, the primary is always going to diffuse it. You're not without without one person um, standing at the forefront to to start making their case and making it consistently. It's it's going to diffuse the support. One of the issues for um, candidates from the South Fork and maybe from the East End in general is just that 
it's a really heavy lift to win Brookhaven and that part of Smithtown that's part of the first congressional district. And without the um, heavy name recognition up there, which maybe Karahan does, she's from Setauket, right? Um, that may position her better. But um, the fact of the matter is that candidates from the East End, no matter how much we may think they're stellar candidates, they have to really prove their case in those hard to win um, Western parts of the district. Yeah, Bill, we, every time we talk about the first district, geography comes into play, right? No, absolutely. It's heavily Republican on, on, on the West End. Um, I, I, <clears throat> I get a little frustrated with, with, with the look it, that that's democracy and that's how our system works with, with, with having primaries and, you know, and having different candidates come out. But you, you would you would there's there's so much resources then that goes into that primary fight and so much money spent on that on that primary fight that that maybe if, if the you know, if the party could get together. Um, earlier on and, and help, you know, help help decide who who would be best suited to run. Maybe some of those resources could be put toward toward the general the general fight. But, yeah, whoever the Republican candidate is, is, you know, get, gets those numbers from from Brookhaven and, and Smithtown. And, you know, those were uh, heavily Trump supporting areas and, and all that. And let's not forget, Lee Zeldin's got to got to win the. Uh, uh, the, the primary for for the governor race too before he decides whether he's you know gonna gonna run for re-election for the first district it may right. well be a, a Lee Zeldin uh, Republican candidate for first district you know uh, again facing one of several Democrats and you know we've got Bridget Fleming and, and Kara Hahn now but how many more Democrats are going to come out of the woodwork I mean what what did we see four or five people in the in the last primary. And again, all those resources that yeah. just go into that primary. It's interesting, Bill, that at her announcement yesterday in the audience was Perry Gershon and Nancy Goroff, who are the last two candidates hmm. for that race. So uh, they've obviously now weighed in for her. That's well, interesting. That's that you, get, you, get, you get that split. You get these these different factions of the Democratic Party all, you know, all infighting against each other to see who gets the nomination. And it would be interesting to see what would happen if maybe they could work together. And I think Bridget was something of a spoiler last time around, too. And she came in uh, and I think Perry Gershon felt like he had the East End support. And when she came in, it split that support enough to put Nancy Goroff over the top for the nomination. So uh, probably not a surprise uh, to see some of those folks lining up with Kara Hahn instead. Carissa, one of the things that's always fascinated me, I, the first district is almost impossible to describe uh, in, in a general sense politically. We had, I, in, in my time here, we had Felix Grucci, who was a, a Republican. Then you had Tim Bishop, who was as liberal a Democrat as you could for several terms. Then it switches over to Lee Zeldin, who is as far right a Republican as you're going to find in the House right now. Um, this district is kind of schizophrenic, isn't it? I mean, it, it it doesn't it swings wildly when it swings. It doesn't yeah. it's it's not really a, it's it's a moderate district that tends to pick. Uh, very far on on uh, to the left and right. Yeah, if, if I'm not mistaken, I I think that Trump won this district very um, by a very small margin. Yes. Yeah, and you can credit that western part of the district um, 
for, for that win. And, you know, just as Steve said that Zeldin didn't win Southhold, Zeldin didn't win Shelter Island. He didn't win uh, East Hampton Town. There were parts of Southampton Town. I don't, I don't know how the final tally was because I tend to, you know, if we sort of report on the districts within our coverage area, but, um, you know, it, it almost given given his wins over the past um, over the past few elections, it's almost surprising to me to think that Tim Bishop ever managed to win in the district because it does seem that 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 um, the Republican base went farther west is very strong. And um, let's let's not let's not forget. I, I think Tim Bishop was a great congressman for for all of his his many terms. Um, but that initial election that he won, I mean, many people would attribute his victory to mistakes on Felix Grucci's part um, with, with the whole release of, of the, um, you know, the, the accusations, you know, the student accusations and, you know, him covering up, um, um, you know, those accusations, that type of thing, that, that it was a misstep on his part that gave Tim that first win. And then Tim did great constituent services, I think, probably in the western end of the district, too, um, working well with with veterans and, and other groups and organizations that that helped him to hang on to that seat for a few terms. But but other than that, it's traditionally been a Republican seat. Yeah. Right. But you find surprising when you look at the East End and because it doesn't, you but, know. But maybe we've got more numbers now after after <laughs> recent influxes. Maybe that might make a. A difference, um, you know. The question is whether people decide to, you know, stay, right? yeah. stay and register to vote here, as opposed to, you know, New York City has a pretty has a big mayoral election coming up. A lot of people may want to who have their other homes there may be more interested in making sure they have a say on who gets to be mayor of New York City. Um, but I know certainly the Democratic Party has made no secret of the fact that they've made that pitch to people to switch registrations. Uh, to the East End where their votes can have more impact than they might in the city. So, uh, and the Democratic registration has gone up significantly in the first district over the years. But um, I'm, I'm just going to be very interested to see how a, a, if it's a heated primary, which I think it has the potential of being, um, this could be just a replay of the last couple of elections for the Democrats that the inability to sort of come together around a single candidate from the start, which I think Bridget Fleming was very clearly trying to do right up front. She was trying to pre, you know, preeminently step forward. I'm the candidate. Everybody's falling behind. And I think that's why Kara Hahn stepping forward this past week was such a significant uh, development in that race. No question. Yeah. So um, as we head towards the home stretch here, um, let's talk about stories that we're working on for the week coming up. Um, Steve, what, what, uh, what are you guys uh, taking a closer look at this week? Well, we're going to be looking at businesses and the difficulties they're having reopening. We're definitely going to do that. But I also want to give a shout out this week. The cover of our Suffolk Times yesterday, Joe, is a Bob Lipa. He's our sports editor story mm. about a Southhold baseball player named Dylan Newman, who's fighting bone cancer. Mm. And this story is kind of a, a really good example of of Bob Lipa going to a baseball game, in this case, a doubleheader, and turning it into a story about a young man's struggle to beat cancer. Oh, and by the way, this was the score of the game further down in the story. And um, take a look at that story and, and see the power of it. And when to go back to your, 
your your thing you were saying a moment ago, Joe, about this is what community journalism is. This is what it is, too. Absolutely. This, this is taking a young man from Southold High School who in 2018 was diagnosed with a very rare form of bone cancer and covering his baseball game. It didn't happen last year because of pandemic. And the year before that, because of chemotherapy, he comes back and he plays. And Bob turns and, this into a story about, you know, a, a young man fighting cancer. Oh, and there's a baseball game going on. And that's Bob in Bob's hands too. Bob is as good a, a sports writer as we've got on the East End. So yeah, I look forward to reading that. That's going to be a great story. Carissa, we got about a minute. What, what are you looking ahead to? Well, if I give away too much, then you guys might do the story. <laughs> um, one we're of all the, off the record. We're off the record. <laughs> the record. Only, only all these listeners. Um, one thing we were talking about a couple seconds ago, we were talking about the, the um, importance of registering to vote here. We're looking um, ahead that Bridgehampton School has its budget revote. After its, but after its budget failed. And basically, if you want to see it, the power of a few votes and why voting in the place where you have your second home might matter even more, Bridgehampton's budget went down by two votes. Mm. Two votes short of a super 60% super majority it needed to pass. So, so um, you know, there's going to be a push by the, by the Bridgehampton board to really get people out to... to um, to weigh in and to try to support that budget so they don't have to go to an austerity plan, which would which would be pretty rough for them. They were tantalizingly close to getting that over the line yeah, the exactly. first time. One so more time. one more time. But the second vote matters. We see a lot of elections where it might be two, it might be five, it might even be eight votes. It's, it happens all the time, and we say it. Uh, your vote does yeah. matter, especially in these lo local races, no question. That's all we have time for this week, guys. It's always a great conversation. Uh, thank you to Carissa Katz from the East Hampton Star and to Steve Wick from the Times Review Media Group. Thank you, Joe. Happy, happy to have you guys. I'm Joe Shaw. Thank you to Bill Sutton, my co-host. Thanks, Bill. Uh, and we'll all be back next week, or we'll be back with some new guests next week. But these guys will be back again, too, at some point, because <laughs> they're really good. So thanks for listening. Thank you guys for your time. <laughs> <laughs>